Thank you so much. Good morning. Happy Sunday. You know, it is my joy to be with you here this morning. And you know what? For real, I would not want to be anywhere else. Three weeks into this new year, and we are still worshiping, and we ain't going to stop. Amen? We ain't stopping. Well, I'm going to jump right into this, okay? Free falling into God's word with each and every one of you here today. You know, we're in our third week of the Upside Down Kingdom message series, and if you're joining us for the first time, we're going to continue exploring the kingdom of God. We're going to explore the kingdom of God in the realms of relationship and um, with God, relationship with God and relationship with others. This is going to be good. Are you ready? I'm ready, I think. I'm ready. I got my my tissues because, you know, Woo! All right, so last week, Pastor Jared, he walked us through the story of when Jesus was tempted. And, you know, there are three temptations in this story, and Pastor Jared um, covered the first temptation. And um, today, we're going to explore the second temptation. But before we get into that, can I invite you to just pray with me? All right. Oh, Lord. Jesus, you are our hope and joy of many generations, God. You have given us the freedom to seek you and in seeking you to find you. I ask God for a clearer vision of your truth, a greater faith in your power and a more confident assurance of your great, great, great love, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Upside down kingdom. All right. You know, when I was a little girl, when I heard kingdom of God, I thought it was referring to heaven. I heard kingdom of God and I thought, ooh, heaven. And then as I got older, I, I, I thought that the kingdom of God meant, his, meant the church and, and God's people. Well, you know, the kingdom of God is so much more than that. It's so much more than that. When Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer, he said this, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is his reign, R-E-I-G-N. His reign, his power, that's the kingdom of God. He sits as king on his throne over the universe, his kingly rule, his action, and encompassed within that is his love, his care, his correction, his will that sustains us and holds us. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and we should pray that every day. Every day we should pray, bring your kingdom, God. Bring your reign. Bring your kingdom in my life. Bring your reign into the lives of my family. Bring your kingdom to this earth, Lord, that we would experience and acknowledge your reign. Your kingdom come. Would you please read the following scriptures with me coming up on the screen? Ready? Go. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. Psalm 145. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And Jesus said this, ready, go. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. God rules. The kingdom of God is not bound by how knowledgeable or spiritual we are. In his kingdom, we win by serving, we triumph by losing, wait a minute, we triumph by losing. We're victorious by losing. Well, if that's the case, 
My 49ers are all about that kingdom of God. <laughs> they are all about the kingdom. All right, 49ers. We triumph by losing. All right. They are kingdom-minded football players. <laughs> but all joking aside, if we triumph by losing, that's the kingdom of God. It, the word of God says we gain our lives by giving our lives. We are to love our enemies, pray for those who hate us. God came to earth. He came to earth to teach this truth, this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, because it was so different from what the earthly kingdom represented. God's kingdom was so different. Love my enemies, pray for those who hate me. Jesus traded his throne for a cross. You can't get more upside-down than that. And it's a kingdom so vastly different that it's upside-down. This is the kingdom of God. He rules and reigns over heaven, over eternity, over the universe, and he reigns over this earthly kingdom. In the story of the temptations, we will see Satan approach Jesus in this earthly kingdom. You know, the Bible talks about Satan having some power and authority in the current world in which you and I exist here on this earth. But someday, this limited and temporary power will come to an end. And oh, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait. Let's talk about the supernatural for a little bit. You know, we're talking about this earthly kingdom. Well, there is a supernatural realm to our earthly kingdom. And you know, talking about the supernatural might feel a little weird for some, but hey, we're at church. And so when we're talking about God and Satan and, and the kingdom of God, you gotta know it's supernatural. <laughs> supernatural. You know, I'm amazed. Some Christians I've met, they're like, hey, you know, Tifa, don't talk about the devil. Don't give the devil any credit. We don't need to talk about the devil. Look, I'm not giving the devil no credit. I ain't. But what I am saying is that we need to be aware that he is here. He's here, seeking who he may kill, steal, and devour. There is an enemy, and it's the enemy to our souls, an enemy to humanity. We're not talking about a storybook, fairy tale villain, but a dark spiritual entity that exists. I grew up with a very unique understanding of the supernatural realm, and so I'm a little more comfortable talking about these things. Um, I was raised with parents who, they ministered um, in deliverance ministry. I mean, they prayed for people, you know, exorcisms, those kinds of things. My parents did that. And there were times that my parents let me go with them as they prayed for people. And um, I have witnessed with my human eyes demons running at the mention of his name. I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, and um, before I was born, my dad was delivered from de demonic possession. Um, he heard voices. He was tormented day and night in his sleep, and he was so addicted to alcohol, 30 years of alcohol addiction. He was so sick that he would even drink rubbing alcohol and, and um, uh, aftershave lotion. I mean, he was so, so, so much pain, anything to numb the pain, and in his early years of childhood, he suffered horrendous child abuse. And at age 16, he joined the United States Marine Corps, and after two Vietnam tours, he returned home from the war, lost, spiritually broken, and, and suicidal. 
He was miserable and he lived a life of blind rage and anger and outbursts of violence. This is my dad. He, he told me, I remember him saying, you know, Tiffa, I was one of those guys that you would see on the street corner talking to themselves, punching at the air. He, my dad said, he described it like this. He said, I could see the demons coming in and out of my face like a, like a zoomy lens and they would laugh at me and scream at me and just call me every name in the book. Well, my mom um, was a new Christian when she met my dad. And um, I want to bring up a picture. Look, the picture on the bottom, there they were when they met each other in Las Vegas. Look how she's looking at him. She's like, mm, that's my white man cowboy. <laughs> and then there they are a couple of years later. There's me up there. I look like my son Xander in that photo. Well, when my mom met my dad, you know, um, he was a traveling musician from Hawaii, and, um, and she worked for the booking agency that booked my dad. Here they are leading worship a few years later. This is the glorious part. This is amazing. So here's my dad, right? He's totally lost, but we're, there's a lot of details about this story, but I'm going to get to the victory part, because that's some victory up there, leading worship. He's leading worship in those photos. My mom, as their friendship grew, um, over the course of, I don't know, a few weeks, they started dating. And of course, it was obvious to my mom how lost my dad was. And she had such a compassion for him. She knew that if he would just encounter the presence of God, he would be healed. He would be made whole. So she was very courageous and bold. And so she prayed. She asked if she could pray over him. And um, my dad described it in this way. He said this, when your mother put her hands on my shoulder to pray for me. I thought she was a witch. (laughs) He said, because I couldn't physically move. I tried to move, but my muscles would not move. I felt paralyzed. I could not move. And I'm thinking, what is this power that this woman has over me? And he said, as she prayed, he said it was like he was wearing a wetsuit and it was peeling off of his body, from his feet all the way to the top of his head. And my dad said the demons were cursing at me, screaming at me, demanding that I shut her up. He's like, but I couldn't even move. And he said, and as that last demon left, he's like, I saw them leave, and they never called my name again. Whoa. My dad was set free. And he lived the rest of his life walking other people through that same kind of deliverance. And my dad, man, he was never terrified of Satan or demons or the supernatural. In fact, um, he used to say, I love it when I'm surrounded by the enemy because then I don't have to look for him. (laughs) That was his life motto. (laughs) And, And he did. He served the Lord and ministered and interceded in prayer up until the very morning he left this earthly kingdom. You know, God has not revealed the whys and the whens and the hows of of concerning Satan's earthly rule on earth, but he has made it clear that there is an enemy. And the only way to escape the power of Satan's dominion is through his son, Jesus. That's what my dad experienced. He experienced this relationship with Jesus. You know, my parents had um, this experience with the kingdom of darkness, this earthly kingdom, and my dad knew that God was chasing him down, and I'm so grateful that my dad pursued God in return. He said yes to Jesus, and the verse that we're going to read, um, it, it reminds me of 
my parents' testimony. St. Peter, he quotes Jesus in the book of Acts and says this, read with me, ready, go. That they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Let's continue on in Colossians, ready, go. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, Jesus knew what he was called to do, he was sent to do. He was sent here to establish the kingdom of God and to establish relationship with humanity because at the center of God's kingdom is relationship. And in order to have relationship, he needed to go to the cross. He knew what he was sent to do. At the center of God's kingdom is relationship, and he pursued relationship. He pursues relationship with you and with me. You know, you and I share in relationship. Some of you here this morning, you know, we're friends, or we've had, we've shared meals together, we've, we've um, prayed with each other. Some of you here, I I might not know personally one-on-one, but there's this relationship, there's this connection, because we're here together in this room, we worship together, and there's this relationship that we share. The relationships that Jesus had with people spanned a wide range of diverse individuals. I mean, his relationships, his friendships went from prostitutes to respected government officials, fishermen, businessmen, women, children, the elderly, the maimed, the blind, and the broken, and the deaf. Miraculous, our Lord. His relationships, he loved people with a passion. He had relationships. You know, how would our lives look, uh, if, look like if we lived out the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus announced the kingdom of God? What could this world look like? You know, Jesus rejected the ways of this earthly kingdom. And so how can we do that too? But I, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes it's hard to see Jesus because he comes through the filters of 20 centuries of church history Maybe our images, images of him come from storybooks or Renaissance paintings and theological terms that pff, I, I hardly know and could recognize. And, you know, but my hope is that we would see Jesus for who he is, that in this new year, 2018, we would see Jesus for who he is, for who he is. Okay, so let's jump into the story of the temptations of Jesus. Wow, this is quite the story, all right? You will see how the story of Jesus' temptations relates to relationship, the relationship that Jesus had with his father and how it will impact you and I in our relationship with him. And you know, this story of the temptations, this was no small battle. I mean, God's will and the devil's will met in that wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus went into solitude and he did not eat anything. He fasted. And he fasted from eating to demonstrate that he was not enslaved to anything but God. He went away for nearly six weeks. He went away from family, friends, and the crowds to retreat. To, um, you know, he knew he was going into this ministry. And so this um, called for a significant time of solitude. You know, Jesus said this in John. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
That's, that was, that's the heart of Jesus. And so let's take a look at the second temptation in the story. Would you please read with me, read with me beginning at verse four. Ready, go. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan skips over adultery, fornication, stealing, lying, murder. I mean, those are the obvious, you know, temptations, too obvious. Satan sticks with religion. Satan takes Jesus to church to tempt him into the holy city, and they stood on top of the temple. And it was there Satan tries to manipulate Jesus by using the Bible as his textbook. He takes this scripture about the angels in Psalm 91 and misuses the scripture, takes it out of context. I mean, Satan quotes the Bible. He knows the Bible. He's got it memorized. Let's read Psalm 91 in its correct context. Ready? Go. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Wow. I mean, Satan used the word of God to try and manipulate Jesus. And um, if I could just spend a minute giving you some context about this time of the temptations. You know, the religious climate was hot. It was, it was feisty. And religious activity ran deep and strong. And it was a complex institution of do's and don'ts, ritual, sacrifice, and pilgrimage. And the temple was the pinnacle of their religious life, the very heart of Jewish worship. And so during this time, politically, the people were oppressed. Oppressed by the Roman tax census, they were religiously oppressed and persecuted. And there was this surge of zealous rebels, violence and fear pervaded over the land. This kind of sounds like America. (laughs) Thinking about that this morning. Wow, history must be repeating itself or what? I don't know. But the people of Israel... They were so oppressed, and you know, they anticipated a Messiah to come and to rescue them, to liberate them. And so here, Satan and Jesus are on top of that church steeple. (laughs) They're on top of that temple pinnacle. And Satan calls Jesus to perform. Come on. Come on, Jesus. I can just imagine it. Imagine if you jumped off this temple and God's angels swoop in to rescue you that Jesus would definitely show the people that you are God. Come on, Jesus, just do it. Perform. Prove yourself. Show yourself. Satan is tempting Jesus with, guess what? Jesus, you can have it all. You can have it all, but without the suffering. You wouldn't need to go to the cross. You can show the people who you are. You can show them who you are by swooping in. Come on, do it, Jesus. But instead, Jesus responds. I mean, if he would have been fallen through with this temptation, he would have stunned everybody at the center of religious life, but he chose not to, and he responds with, don't test the Lord. You know, Satan had one aim in the wilderness, to do whatever he could to keep Jesus from suffering. 
He didn't want Jesus to go to that cross because he knew what that would mean for us. You know, Satan tried to ruin God's plan of salvation, but he couldn't. He couldn't. You know, and Jesus said this in John 8, 44. Read with me. Ready, go. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. A murderer and a liar by nature, that's Satan. You know, Jesus rejected this opportunity to show his power and authority. He rejected this opportunity to perform in order to have relationship with us. You can write this down if you want. By, write it on your heart. That's, that's more important that you write it on your heart. Jesus endured temptation to show that we're worth relationship. Again, nothing was going to keep Jesus from getting to that cross. No temptation. He, was, he knew what God set out before him, and he would do it. He would do it. You know, we have to, when we read this account of the temptations, we got to realize what's at stake here. If Jesus were to parachute off that um, pinnacle, off that temple, that would show that he's just a man. But he doesn't fail. He's victorious. He doesn't fall into temptation, which shows that indeed he is God's son. He endured the temptation in order to have relationship with us with you and with I. Are you still with me? Still tracking with me? All right, because this story, this is about us. This is about you and I. You know, and this morning as we continue on, I have come to proclaim. Oh, it's such a churchy word, yeah. (laughs) Proclaim. But it's true. I'm here to proclaim, to publicly announce with emphasis that you matter to God. You matter to God. You are worth relationship. God wants you. You matter to God. And it's so simple. You might say, well, hello, duh, Tim. Okay, okay, I matter to God. All right. I already know that. But some of you here today, you might think, I guess I matter to God, but I don't know. The universe is so huge. I'm just this little insignificant speck. I mean, does God care? I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm about to tell you how much you matter. I'm about to explain it to you. This message is for two groups of people, people that know they matter to God and people that don't know they matter to God. And I'm here to remind you that you matter to God. And this truth is worth talking about time and time again, year after year, century upon century. You matter to God. But there is a war. There is a war for your relationship with Jesus. But you matter to God. He says, I desire relationship with you. He desires relationship with you. He desires relationship with humanity. And you know, when Satan tempted Jesus in that desert, he challenged the identity of Jesus as God's son. I mean, he said, if you're the son of God, come on, prove it. Perform. Show us. If you're the son of God. I mean, he's so evil. Satan went there. But I love this. I love this part of the story. Right before Jesus was led into the wilderness for his solitude dude time, God showed up right before. Read with me. Ready, go. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
right before he was sent out to the wilderness, Jesus was baptized, preparing for the ministry that was ahead of him. This is relationship with Jesus and his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here at his baptism, what God was saying is, Jesus, even before you do anything, you're my son, and I'm pleased with you, and I love you. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You, Before you even embark on this ministry that I have set before you, you matter to me. Before you begin your ministry, you are my son. Before you do anything, you are my son first. So how dare Satan say, if you're the son of God? He knew darn well who Jesus was and is and will forever be, and he tried to do anything he could to take him out. Woo! This earthly kingdom way back then, even up to now, was so performance-driven. I mean, can you imagine Jesus on top of that pinnacle? I mean, he's looking down at this temple, this religious institution, people running in and out, frustrated and stressed and performing, performing, performing. So performance-driven, the earthly kingdom. But the kingdom of God is relationship-driven. And you can write this down. The earthly kingdom says that the love of God is earned. Salvation is earned. Relationship is earned. But the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that, that Jesus preached, teaches us that God's love is an undeserved gift. An undeserved gift. Read with me, will you? Ephesians chapter 2. Ready, go. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. You know, historically, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they worship religion and tradition instead of God. And that's kind of the message that they shared to the people of that nation. You know, it became all about performance and they forgot relationship. I mean, I think it's like they forgot their history. They forgot that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they all pursued relationship with God. You know, those religious leaders, they lost sight of their worship and it caused this chaos. It caused pain. The temple represented this spiritual hierarchy and and there was a spiritual battle. A mental, spiritual, and physical unrest was breaking the people down. The pressure to perform was killing God's people. This pressure. And they were so centered on their works, earning salvation, earning God's love, and this impacted the whole nation. Jesus was relationship-driven. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were performance-driven. But Jesus came, right? And he flipped the whole thing upside down. I mean, here were hundreds and hundreds of Jewish law to keep. Can you imagine that kind of an op- oppression and, and just this, this law? Hundreds and hundreds of laws. Jesus came with two laws, two commands. Love God love others. Boom. I said it. That's it. Love God, love others. Jesus told them, he said to the religious leaders, you follow the letter of the law, but not the letter, not the letter of love. Jesus came to abolish religion that these people were stuck in. Read it. Read the word. That's what it says. Jesus saw how performance driven they were. And you know, they establishing all of these rules on how to be a good Jew. But I think that we do that too. We have all these rules on how to be a good Christian. You know, as we look at the church today, is history repeating itself? Are we pursuing performance instead of relationship? 
I don't believe that we do it on purpose, but I see it creeping in. And if it's creeping up in my life, performance is creeping up in my life, I can just imagine that maybe, just maybe, it's creeping up in your life. My parents were pastors, and I never felt any pressure from them to perform or to be the perfect Christian girl. They didn't put that kind of pressure on me. They didn't. They were really good about that. However, any pressure that I did feel came from this need to please people. There was a time when I cared about what people thought of me. I wanted to appear good and, and perfect in the eyes of people. You know, I, and even long after the days of high school and into um, my adult years, I still felt this pressure to perform. I served at my church week after week, seven days a week. I, I attended this Bible college. And I could just feel this pressure to perform, this pressure that I, I really put on myself. Come on, Tiff. Be a good girl. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to prove yourself. You're not praying like you should. You're, you're failing your classes. You're dating the wrong guy and you're making mistakes. Remember that one summer you, got, you smoked that joint? <laughs> For real, why are you guys laughing? I ain't proud of that. <laughs> Man, remember when you drank those beers? Remember that? Remember what you were doing? Do you remember that? And, and you're screwing up and you call yourself a Christian? Bad performance, Tifa. Bad performance. I could go on and on. I could go on and on. Talk about confession time. Tis good for the soul. <laughs> but when I failed, I would try to hide from God as if I could hide from God. But I felt like I couldn't approach him. And I felt like I couldn't approach him because I was ashamed of my sin. And I was so disappointed in myself in the fact that I had failed. And there were times that I ran from my relationship with Jesus instead of running to the relationship. And there was this voice, this voice of the accuser, Satan, vile and condemning. His voice saying, you're a failure. What you did is who you are this condemnation. But then there's this voice of God, the voice of conviction, this healing conviction, saying, you messed up, but give me your hand. Let me help you overcome this. There's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. You know, it's that conviction is a good pain. It aches. It's not always fun, but it's that conviction that changes people, and it changed me. It still changes me. I ain't perfect. It still changes me. I mean, where would we be without his grace? How many of you here this morning would say, I'm so grateful for the grace of God? I'm so grateful for the grace of God. You know, I am all about that grace, about that grace, no trouble. I am all about that grace. But grace is only amazing when I realize how big of a wretch I really am. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wench like wretch wench, wretch like me. That's when grace is amazing, when I realize that I am not good. Any goodness within me is the goodness of Christ. I'm not good. I am not good. I am not good. To say I'm not good. Come on, guys. He's good. He's good. You know, pursuing relationship and not performance, the sooner that I can, you know, realize that and recalibrate my heart when I'm, you know, messing up, but coming back into the arms of grace but recognizing that this grace is a gift, but that conviction to change me. I don't ever want to take his grace for granted. When have you disqualified yourself because of your sin? 
Do you disqualify yourself when you've had a bad performance? You know, many Christians fall into the same trap of the people in Jesus' day. You know, weekly visits to the temple, weekly visits to church, check. We drop off our offerings, check. We sponsor a child in need, check. I serve twice this month in children's ministry, check, check. I read my Bible every day, check. Well, I didn't cuss as much this week, so I'm doing pretty good, check, check. I do it too, this message is for me, for real. Fighting this performance-driven mentality. I'm a worship leader, check. I've served in ministry most of my life, check. I teach at a Bible college once a week, check. I pray and I gave that homeless man a meal last week, check. I give my 10% tithe, check, check. I wrote a check. Um, Well, I didn't scream at my kids this week, so I'm doing pretty good, check, check, check. I am just like the Pharisees, acting just like the Pharisees. Rules, rituals, and then I rate my performance. Jesus did not come to the earth so that at the end of the day we can say how good we are. He didn't come for that. He rejected that and he taught relationship. I have a question for you. How are you tied more to religion and tradition, performance, and not your relationship with God? Think about that, please, for a moment. We don't always see our enemies so clearly. You know, he's not always coming in riding on a black horse all up in our face like, ah, I gotcha. No, he's not always so obvious. The enemy is sneaky and he comes often quietly dressed in religion and tradition and good works. And he probably curtsies because he's a pansy. <laughs> For real. Sorry, I don't know where that came. That devil, it's not always so obvious. He comes very, very sneakily. Sneakily. Did I just make up a word? Why are we so wired to being legalistic? I think that's what we do. A human nature. I mean, we're wired to be legalistic. We're wired to just rate ourselves and our performance, and and we think that that's what confirms our assurance of our relationship with God. Okay, I have this relationship with God because I've been good. I've been good. So I have this relationship with God. We're good. He's good. We're good. Right, God? We're good. And we do that. We do that. Adam and Eve performed and failed. Moses performed and failed. King David performed and failed. Peter. I mean, so many biblical heroes of the faith, they struggled with performance over their relationship with God. But the kingdom of God beckons us back into relationship. The kingdom of God does that while this earthly kingdom pulls at you and pulling at us to measure our value and our worth by how well we perform. Jesus went beyond traditions and religious works. He was all about love. When you read the scriptures, that's what Jesus was all about. He did not come to lead the establishment. He did not come to inherit a religion or start a religion. He came and taught us that it's relationship with him and relationship with others. Love God, love others. It wasn't just about salvation, although salvation is huge and it's a big part of the gospel. But if we make it just about salvation, we are missing the fullness and wholeness of the gospel. It's salvation, yes, but after that, relationship. And we pursue relationship with Jesus. And I don't know who said this quote, but it just struck a chord with me. Jesus doesn't take applications. He gives invitations. You know, as we're coming to a close, family, there is revival burning in my soul. 
We are learning what makes the kingdom of God so different and it's tearing me apart. I am being awakened to the love that God has for humanity and it's tearing me apart because I see people everywhere, including myself, not fully recognizing, not fully walking in, not fully believing and experiencing or acknowledging God's reign in their lives. They don't know. We don't know how much we're loved. Okay, I matter to God, but I'm just not sure. And I see people everywhere walking around, not fully experiencing the reign of God in their lives. Jesus prayed a powerful prayer. And I want to pray this with you this morning. It's going to come up on the screen. Let's read this. Ready? Go. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such a perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am, that they can see the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Father, I pray, he's saying this, I pray that the people, you and I, would be one, united, as you and I are one, Father. That's the prayer of Jesus. Imagine with me a church united, united, Imagine a church that anybody who walks through these doors, what would they see? What would they experience? Would they see unity? Would they see thriving relationship grounded in the love of God? Jesus said this, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples if you love each other. Not if you perform, not if you're good, but if you love each other. That's how people will know I am who I am. That's what he's saying. Jesus gave those commands, love God, love others. Essentially, he's saying, be in relationship with God, be in relationship with others. That is love. That is being relationship-driven. That's what it is. I want to experience the Holy Spirit that we read about in this book. When what we see and what we read in this book, we believe what it says, and then we go after it. Does it resonate with anybody here this morning? Do you believe that there has got to be more to what we do on a weekend, more to than this, more to than what we do here? An hour and 15 minutes once a week. What about 166 other hours the rest of the week? Oh, I went to church this weekend. Check. We've got to pursue relationship with God. He instructs so clearly. This is what changes the world. This is what changes the world. This is how we're going to reach our city. Let's go out together in love, in Christ's love, really loving people, really loving, loving all. All means all. Loving all. What could that look like for you? You're thinking of the person you don't really, it's people that are unlovable. It's not just people we know, but it's people we bump into along in the streets, in the malls, in the shopping, in the hustle, in the bustle, the bill collectors, the tax. I mean, it's loving all, radically loving all and living a life of that. When we become one, like the Father and Jesus are one, that's when people start to believe. That's when restoration happens. That's when fire falls. That's when racism ends. That's when violence ends. That's when the percentage of the divorce rate starts going down. That's when fear has to go. That is when, it, that's when suicide is no longer an option for our young people. 
when unity comes with God's people, not performance, not performance. We've got to be family. That's what we see in God's word. There is a whole community of people, a whole world of people, wondering if this is real. So show them by your love. 